0: This podcast is funded by Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book,
1: What School Could Be.
0: I'm Josh Rappoon, and this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. Here in September 2020, this podcast series is approaching 14,000 downloads in 40 countries worldwide. Clearly, we tapped into a global hunger for ideas and stories from imaginative and innovative educators and education leaders engaging students across the Hawaiian Isles. In the middle of a pandemic, we pivoted and took this series virtual. I built a studio in my home on Oahu and physically distant guests call in via their mobile phones. In the last episode, I talked with Lori Peroff, an extraordinary educator and education leader at Waikiki Elementary School on the island of Oahu. Today, I'll be talking with an educator I first met back in the early spring of 2016. As I was working on my second public screening of Ted Dintersmith's film, Most Likely to Succeed, Christina Ho, a humanities teacher at Leisure Academy, approached me with an idea for a student-led screening of Ted and Greg Whiteley's film later in the semester. To find out how her idea developed and what her students did with the film, you have to listen to this episode. Christina, a Teach for America graduate, first taught at the Isabel Rooney Public School in the Bronx. She moved to Hawaii in 2005 and joined the faculty at Le Jardin Academy, a medium-sized independent school on the windward side of the island of Oahu. At Le Jardin, she is the Dean of Experiential Education and Community Partnerships. In her words, she takes kids into the forest and leads Socratic seminars on all types of subjects. Christina is also the co-founder with a group of sixth graders and executive director of the Wild Community Foundation. More on that towards the end of the episode. Finally, during the initial COVID-19 lockdown on Oahu, Christina spearheaded a campus and community initiative to use 3D printers to make filtration masks and sewing circles to make fabric face masks. As much as anyone I know, Christina Ho's world is centered on unleashing the potential in all children. She knows for sure what school could be. And now, here's my conversation with Christina Ho. Christina Ho, welcome to the podcast.
2: I'm happy to be here, virtually. Yes. I guess
0: that's all podcasts, right? Yep, all podcasts are now virtual. I, I... I, do not understand how anybody could be working in a studio right now, but, uh, but virtual okay. is good. It's, um, yeah. it, okay. it actually, it's super interesting how it makes it possible now to, to have conversations with people where physical, physically, you wouldn't have been able to do it before, you know, just, you can't fly in from a neighbor Island or something like that. So yeah, lots of possibilities. Yeah. There's always silver linings in these things.
1: <laughs> True. Yeah.
0: True. So, Christina, our format is 10 questions, so I'm going to fire 10 questions at you, and you just let her rip. Um, so here comes question number one. So okay. back in the first season of this podcast, I interviewed a young middle school educator from the Maui campus of Kamehameha Schools. His name is Doug Hugh. And to say that you know Doug had a difficult childhood is a pretty serious understatement. But his determination and resilience carried him to the position he holds today. And it very much informed you know, his philosophy of education and his great love for his students. So I, I would love for you, Christina, to share your childhood as much as you feel comfortable doing and how you fought your way through trauma and chaotic family circumstances to an eventual scholarship to Dartmouth College.
2: Um, yeah, well, let's see. Where to begin. Um, I I grew up in Montana. Uh, my mom was a single mom. Um when I was five, we left my dad um kind of in the dead of the night. We had a, a friend came and we all got in the back of a pickup and got away. Um, my dad was a pretty raging alcoholic, um and very physically abusive. And so my mom was like, we're getting out of here. And so from that moment, from, you know, age five until um, I was 12 when she remarried, she she was a single mom to me and my sister. She didn't have a college education. Um, and obviously she had her own um, pretty heavy trauma to work through. But she, uh, her real fundamental belief is that education, she's a, she really buys into the meritocracy to some extent, I would say. She, she thinks that, like, with education, you can um, get out of whatever circumstances you're in. So she enrolled in college at the University of Montana and um, was a history and political science major and then went on to law school. And I try to think about how she could have done that with two children, two young children. I, I have a daughter who's three and a half, and I can barely right manage my current like life at, you know with a husband and aunties and uncles and everybody helping and my mom somehow like went to school had a job so that she could you know pay the bills and then also had two kids and was very involved in our lives um, we uh, had a lot of um, I guess financial trouble as you would guess like for somebody that's a single mom and going to college and you, what do you You know, you have to work night shifts or you, have, you know what do you do so um there were times where we didn't have food there were times where we were without a home um and but it it's weird like i guess i grew up feeling like um those things didn't matter they weren't available to us um you know things like cable television we didn't have a television to begin with ever um but you know we didn't have really any toys like if we did it was my mom felt really strongly about like playing with sticks and chicken feet and corn husk dolls and stuff like that that she could make and um being in nature and so I I think back to it and I don't know that I would say it was a traumatic childhood yes there was violence and there was homelessness and there was hunger but um with that kind of came this like incredible gift of resilience and confidence in what you can make of your life um my mom just was absolutely unyielding in our expectation that we show up um and work hard in school that we are activists she had us like marching literally in every single (laughs) social or environmental um activist rally And so, I don't know, it was a really rich childhood in so many ways. Um, When I was 12, my mom remarried. Um, She married my stepdad, Tony Crossguns. Um, Both of my fathers, my biological and my adopted father, Native American. My my biological father is Lakota um, from the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota. And my um, adopted father is Blackfeet from Browning, Montana, from the Blackfeet Reservation. Um, So when I was 14 my um and the story, a story that doesn't belong in this podcast my family was banned from the reservation that we lived on and um for 7 years and had to go back to the Blackfeet reservation there's seven reservations in Montana um the Salish and Kootenai reservation was the one that we were living on and then um my there's a, a an intense historical blood feud between the Blackfeet and the Kootenai and mm-hmm. because of a series of issues my my stepdad was Banned, so they moved to Browning, and the schools there are terrible. Um, and there's knife fights every day, and you know, really low rate of graduation. And so I lived with friends during high school. Um, I was, you know, the community really embraced me, and I um, lived with a different family each year of high school, which gave me a huge insight into how other people live like that some people don't have grocery lists. They, they just go to the store and buy what they want. That was like a totally foreign concept to me or that you don't remember to turn the lights off every time you leave a room because you don't really think about your electrical bill again, totally foreign to me that you lie to your parents. Hell no, that would never happen in my household. So like, it was really interesting to get to live with these different families who had really different norms. Um, and I think that informs a lot of who I am as a thinker and as an educator, um, I believe in the potential of humans um very very deeply. I was able to kind of live a, a magical existence and until I think I think my story could be one of again like that you know of loss and not having enough or all those kind of things but I think it's like it's like every single door I've ever wanted to open has opened for me. Mm. Um and so as an educator try to extend to students that belief in their highest self at all times and mm. never, ever drop that expectation. It mm. doesn't matter what's going on. It doesn't mean you don't show compassion or empathy, but, but your highest self. And I don't mean that in terms of grades, but I mean that in terms of choices um, and risks that you're willing to take mm. in that, high, that highest self. So yeah, that's a little bit about my childhood. And yes, mm. I, I did end up getting a full ride to Dartmouth. And that again, it's just like an incredible just a huge gift
0: and and how did Dartmouth end up on your radar screen of all the colleges that were possible how did Dartmouth um, become the one
2: It's good question I uh a recruiter came to our reservation um Dartmouth has a in its charter um I think a, a very like colonial um sort of um unfortunately <laughs> mm-hmm. um uh its original charter was to educate Indians. And I think that was very much like part of that whole, like, you know, um, kill the Indian to save the man kind of belief of the time. Um, maybe less so than some other places, but that's evolved over the years to continue to um, reach out to Native students across the country. And I should clarify, in a normal conversation, I probably wouldn't say Native, I'd uh, just say Indian. I don't know any Indian that calls themselves Native maybe just native, but not native American. It's just Indian, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, or like Indian. Um, but so yeah, a, a guy came to our res and was, um, recruiting native students and, which is crazy because there's only like 5,000 people in our town. Um, like on the bigger side for Montana. Um, and yeah, I, there was a kid a year ahead of me that had gone there. So I thought, that seems like a really awesome opportunity. Yeah. So, I only applied to two schools. I applied to Dartmouth and the University of Montana mm-hmm. and was just kind of like, and that's, I mean, that's another example. Like, I, I worked at a private school here in, in Hawaii, and there's so many things like I had no idea existed. Even in my time in Dartmouth, it was just sort of the ice, you know, the tip of the iceberg for what people live like in wealth. Um, but, like, the idea that there's SAT prep courses or that right. there's a college counselor that like helps you like get into all these different schools. That that was just not something that mm-hmm. existed in my world. But again, it with a different paradigm. You're kind of like, well, I guess I didn't need those things. Cause again, that like magical, yeah. just such a magical life. Yeah. Just kind of work out. Right.
0: So Christina, judging by your resume, which you graciously shared with me, um, Dartmouth College seems to loom large in your your life's journeys, um, so much so that in 2002, you were named one of the 10 most influential women on campus. And what really caught my eye was that you served as musical director for the Dartmouth Rockapellas, an all-female <laughs> acapella group. And then on top of that, you initiated a boycott by the Rockapellas of Dartmouth's fraternities because of their disrespect <laughs> for women on campus. So I would love for you to share about how this boycott came about. And this is decades before the current Me Too movement. Like, what was that all about?
2: Um, yeah, so I think, <laughs> again, like, just going back to my mom, she was the type of woman that refused to shave her armpits or her legs. And um, she was like a rebel rouser. Like, it wasn't just enough to have a belief. It was like, unless you stood on a box and, like, Hold that belief, then it was like it didn't exist. And so she was very, very active. um And just as a very short anecdote, like our house was wiretapped by the FBI when I was 10 because my mom had housed members of the Arizona 7, which is like an eco terrorist group that had shut down a power plant in Arizona. Um, and so I grew up feeling like, I would say in some way, she like kind of had like an Atticus Finch type thing, but like way more, like you take Atticus Finch, who's like very purposely, constantly in front of his children, spouting his beliefs. And then you, and then you add like a huge dose of like fire and brimstone. And, um, just like (laughs) (laughs) my mom was just like insane about like, you have to be active in your community and do the thing that is the scariest and that, and be brave. You know, if you're not brave, then like, what's the point? And so that kind of has informed a lot of my choices, sometimes for better and sometimes for worse. Like there's a righteousness that needs to be tamed, which I think comes with age. Um, but at Dartmouth we had some issues with um fraternities um being completely inappropriate and um they had made a list of women who were uh Worthy of sex. I'm trying to think of how you say it politely on a podcast. Mm-hmm. Very, a very like inappropriate list, and then like with descriptions about them, and um, essentially like you know like predatory behavior, and it caused a major like like the list uh, got ripped up, and this girl like jumped into a dumpster and found it and pieced it back together and like published it. Wow. And so there was this choice on campus to either be like, oh, boys will be boys. just like they were just playing around or be like, no, be better. And so in my belief, we can always be better, be our best selves. So it was, it was a real um, point of contention there because I think a lot of girls in my acapella group were a little bit like, why do we have to stand out right now? Like, this is so awkward. Like, everyone gonna know we're the ones that are taking the stand. But then ultimately, we all came to the consensus that, it was worth it. So, yeah, we boycotted the fraternities um, until there was a, a resolution to the incident. And we and we wanted them to publicly be like, we are not going to do this. We're sorry. And and to own it and to stop mm-hmm. hiding behind, hey, no big deal. We're just dudes having a good time. Have a drink. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I'm really proud of being part of the Rockefellers. I was a, really a group of extremely powerful women who used music to
0: influence, mm. change, mm. I, but,
2: and all know, of them do rad stuff. Yeah. Go ahead.
0: I, I would have loved to have been an observer listening in on how you and your group came to a consensus. That must've been pretty remarkable.
2: It was, <laughs> it might've been remarkable and maybe at times cringy. cringey. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the rhetoric uh, that all of us employed, me included, you know, um, I'm sure I would look back and be like, "Wow, Christina! Like, there's other ways to get people to agree with you." But in the end, we all we all stood by each other, and that's um, yeah. I think that's the important
0: part. Yeah, that's super cool. So I want to go back just for a second. Um, you know, you talked about you know growing up that not having a well stocked fridge, and you didn't watch, didn't have a television, and you you hunted for your meat, and you listened to records, and and played with homemade toys. Was there a point at Dartmouth? Where you, you sort of consciously realized that your growing up experiences were informing who you were as a as a college student.
2: Uh yeah, I, I have a couple of memories. One of the main ones of my freshman year, I um, had two situations. One was I went to the dining hall and I I couldn't I like looked at it and I was like, oh my God, I think I hadn't really, because my mom hunted um, and my stepdad, most of our food was caught or grown. And I was just kind of like suddenly like baffled by the food industry. And um, so I became a vegetarian for a time, which I just want to be clear while I am a very much like nature loving hippie in some ways I do eat meat now. Mm -hmm. Um, but I did have this stint of vegetarianism because I couldn't understand like where people were even getting their food. It just seemed so, um, so terrible. And, um, and I, I should clarify that in addition to the caught and grown food, we also got boxes of commodity food from the government, you know, in the like white package, brown writing type Helvetica food where it's like puffed rice, which is actually just rice Christie's. Um, which all Indians get if if you sign up for the commodity food um, program. But Mm -hmm. my mom, like, didn't let us eat most of that food because it was, like, so terribly processed. So that was one thing where I was suddenly like, what the heck? Mm. Um, And then I think the other thing, you know, my freshman year, I worked really hard. I I was, you know, I had the imposter syndrome, which most people have actually all, all throughout life. But I had the imposter syndrome going strong. Like, I didn't belong there and this kid made the, you know, of course the comment of like, you're only here cause you're native. Um, wow. and like, you know, you wouldn't have gotten in otherwise. And so I had this kind of like, you know, I was, I don't belong here. This isn't, you know, I realized that like most of the people that I was friends with, their parents had paid for college with one check for four years. And I kind of had this like crisis and I called my mom and I was like, I'm coming home. I can't do this. Like, I don't belong here. And, of course, my mom was like, you know what, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Like, like there was no space for feeling sorry for yourself about that. Mm. And um, so I worked really hard, and I ended up with a 3.9 that first year of college. And I, my advisor was like, Christina, you know, you, you do belong here. You know that, right? And I realized that, like, I actually wasn't even working that hard. And I had this impression that everybody there was just, so much smarter and had learned so much more in school and what I realized is that actually no doesn't matter what school you go to at the end of the day if you're you know you you can learn anything you can literally learn anything and what I had that none of my fellow students had was I had grit I had like I had struggle um and that made me actually like an edge mm-hmm. above everybody um yeah. in ways that I cherish so I don't know yeah. yeah of course I was aware that I was different like I was <laughs> I was super different in like uh, every way, but it was okay. Cause mm. the people at Dartmouth were rad. Um, mm. and I needed to get over myself, I guess, get over my insecurities.
0: Wow. That's so interesting. I just finished reading a book by, um, Paul tough about college. Oh yeah. Um, and part of the, you know, one of the themes that he really explores in depth is, um, you know, the ways that kids demonstrate resiliency and determination and, the ways that colleges need to step up in order to support that. And it it really sounds like your mom was that college counselor who helped you to work through a lot of that. That's like super interesting. Um, So, Christina, uh, we're going to jump from Montana and then to Dartmouth, and now we're going to land in New York City. So um, you taught as a Teach for America graduate, uh, for two years at um, Isabel Rooney, a middle school in the Bronx in New York City. And in your resume, you mentioned developing the ecology curriculum as one of your accomplishments. So I'd, I'd love to know more about this, especially because sometime later, you assisted in gaining international wetland protection for koh nui Marsh, just across the street from your current school, Le Jordan. Um, So what was that ecology curriculum, and how did it work, and in what ways did it help kids gain sustainability skills and mindsets?
2: Um, Well, I think, I just realized that, I'm trying to think of how I can best um, house this. My life experience has um, been entirely rooted in nature. And I, I think that's actually one thing that poverty can sometimes provide. Because it's what it's all you have, right? It's where you can get your food. It's where you can send your kids out to play. Um, It's where you can camp if you don't have a home. Um, It's like it doesn't cost anything. At least in a state like Montana, where there's like abundant public land and wilderness areas. And so, um, and my mom, you know, had founded a a nonprofit called Wilderness Watch. Like we were just immersed in environmental and ecological. communities, uh, or communities that wanted to protect, um, the ecosystem. And so when I got, went to New York, I was, I was always telling the kids stories about my childhood and because it's an easy way to connect with humans is through story. And that's very much, um, I think a lot of tribal people grow up. Like that's how you, mm-hmm. um, that's how you really navigate the world is through stories. And my students were just like enamored with like stories about bison and elk and grizzly bears and mountains wow. like enamored and so i realized like they didn't have that opportunity like in an urban environment even though there's tons of um, opportunities in new york city my kids hadn't been given that so there was a uh, nesting pair of um, red tail hawks on the roof of our school hmm. and so we started there and learning about those hawks that were right there and then we started um, started taking them to Van Cortlandt Park, which was just not a far walk away. And so we would, you know, get get everybody together, walk to the park, and learn about um, the ecosystem there in that park. And what I found was that my students were highly engaged um, because all the other stuff that, like, you know, forcing the kids to like have four hours of literacy, um, which was like part of the No Child Left Behind Act. Right. Versus, like, going to the park, having, like, <clears throat> learning essentially nature literacy, and then coupling that with some sort of book that would enrich further enrich that experience, it rooted them. And it, it's, it just is something that I'm so proud of Hawaii for focusing on aina-based education, where mm. it's not just about taking kids outside, or it's not about science. It's about the entire reality of us being part of the ecosystem, right? right. It's about who are we as members of an ecosystem? And um, that was really the approach that we took in New York. And I found that the kids. So then I started on the weekends taking them to the Natural History Museum or down to the Audubon Society. Um, there's a park down in Brooklyn. Took them there to see the raptors and the um, various birds that they had that you could you know, get up close and personal with. Um, and it just became something that, the kids, um, it got them engaged. And so on some level, like that was the goal, right. Is to get the kids engaged, but also to, um, there's no reason that any child should grow up disconnected from nature. Like what a bizarre idea. Mm -hmm. I literally evolved in nature. Um, and we've created these like urban health where like kids are just like languishing. Um, and that's of our own design. So it should be on us to undo that. Um, essentially, Mm -hmm. but I don't know that, that was the, it's hard to like, What was the curriculum? It was just um, getting the kids to start to observe their um, natural surroundings and then complementing that with, um, you know, your basic ecology program about like um, how things interact within the ecosystem. Um, So it was the nice thing is that it it was completely interdisciplinary. So they were learning science and literacy and math um, all within the within the kind of focus point.
0: Right, that's um, that's like super cool. Yeah. Uh, one of the formative experiences of my life, Christina, is that uh, I think it was back in 1999, um, I got involved with something called the Aliomanu Military Reservation. Um, there's an after-school program there that just help helps kids with, you know, difficult family lives and and other types of struggles. Um, And so I started volunteering there, and then I started um, arranging to take the kids to Kauai Nui Marsh to work with Chuck Burroughs and Rick and those guys down there, and we were opening up wetlands, opening up areas for the ducks to come back and actually drop in on the water. And I, I look back on that and we were like up to our necks in mud and water and, and, you know, that was just such, I, I, <laughs> there are some liabilities there that I was overlooking, which I feel terrible about now, but, um, but nevertheless, it was, you know, it, it, what you're talking about really resonates. It's just, we have become in so many ways disconnected and uh, from nature, kids have. And I, I think in Hawaii, we're taking some really positive steps to make sure that kids are, sort of immersed in the idea that we live here on this island and that it has an ecosystem and it's something worthy of, of their participation in that ecosystem.
2: Yeah, I agree. I think, um, I, you know, at Dartmouth, it's not like I was the only poor kid that went to that school, but what I did know, at least within my community, um, is that it's like, what a different experience if your family is poor, but you have TV. And so what you're being pummeled with is this like life, this picture of a life that you don't have access to. Like every commercial, every show, it's like everything about those lives that are on television are are basically um, juxtaposed with what your experience is. And even if it's like a show that is meant to like capture, you know, poverty, it's still it it still is like this just terrible um storytelling essentially for kids that actually are in poverty I think Mm -hmm. but if you don't have a television and you're and you you are technically in poverty and you're outside all the time snakes Mm -hmm. don't give don't don't give any um concern whatsoever for how much money you have and I mean you don't have snakes in Hawaii but we do in Montana and like horses don't care and elk don't care and deer don't care trees don't care and so if that's who you're who your community is, um, you kind of grew up being like, well, I mean, I know I'm poor. I know that from school, but like, it doesn't, it doesn't infiltrate my being.
1: Hmm.
2: And I think, um, unfortunately like we send so many terrible messages to our, like, you know, in everyone's head through those stupid
0: television.
2: I was <laughs> like, Oh, yeah. Like, Ugh,
0: yeah. I have two nephews who grew up on their parents' farm in Waihole Valley And they they did not have a television. And those two kids, well, they're not kids anymore, but um, (laughs) they are two of the most imaginative people I know in my life. And I connect directly that idea to the fact that they didn't have television. They they co-constructed a life together as two kids on this farm. And and they were also avid readers. But their imaginations, that's what kicked in. Up there, without without being fed images and and themes and ideas from television, they simply created it on their own. Um, so That's it's awesome. it's pretty pretty cool, yeah. So okay, so Christina, you you shared with me a cover letter you wrote from your position at the Rooney School in the Bronx, and you were yeah. work, you were working to get a teaching job at Leisure Dan Academy in Hawaii. And in that letter, you wrote, and I quote. Um, Perhaps most important in a school where, where gang violence is epidemic, I have endowed my students with an ethic of peace and compassion and the skills to maintain such ideals. My class is the only one of the 26th grade classes to boast no student suspended for fighting. Additionally, parents have consistently petitioned to have their children placed in my classroom for its reputation as a safe and constructive learning environment. So I was like, wow, okay, how did you accomplish this endowment of young people? How did that work?
2: Well, um, I think, so again, like, I think Teach for America sometimes gets a bad rap because um, it takes really, like, bright, I would say probably overachievers and says, you know what, take this energy and this, like, you know, this light and then get in there and help kids who are in failing schools. And I actually love, I love that idea because it's like, okay, wherever the energy is, let's funnel it to where it's needed. The, the, the reason it gets criticized is that some of those really bright overachievers from like Ivy League schools don't have a point of commonality with their students. so They don't, mm. they don't, they don't have any point of reference to understand what the life outside of school or even in school is like for their kids. Um, it doesn't mean that can't be overcome or learned. And I think a lot of Teacher America um, teachers do just that. I was really um, in a point of privilege because I knew exactly what it's like to live in a community that ha- is wrought with violence and alcoholism and drug abuse. Um, I know what it's like to be in a school where teachers disrespect students and where there's you know violence in the halls um, and And so for me, it was like an immediate like uh, coming home in a sense of, of course, is in an urban environment with a population that was mostly Dominican, Puerto Rican and African-American with a few refugees from, um, you know, former Yugoslavia. But um, but they so it was for me, it was like, okay, first things first, we have to create a really strong culture in this class, like all these other like issues around test scores and whatever. We have to create the culture. And we're going to do that through stories um, and through positive reinforcement, you know, just like classic pedagogical um, wizardry. Mm -hmm. But I think the thing that worked really well was two part. One was I created these like kind of epic tales of these heroes that my kids got behind. So I kind of like retold the story of like Gandhi and and I sense like kind of like, you know, um, graduated out of iconic um, you know, tales where you just talk about icons, you know. But mm-hmm. at that time, I was 23, and I was like, I'm going to, like, make them think this guy is the coolest guy that's ever lived. And, um, and then, so that, like, kind of these stories of these, like, peacemakers and, like, how incredible they were. And so my kids, like, started to love these people. And so we just mm-hmm. would learn, like, well, what strategies did they use and what made them so brave? But then the second thing was that I spent a ton of time I mean, a ridiculous amount of time, and that's the overachiever part, getting to know my kids and spending time with them outside of school, like coaching the running team, taking kids out into the parks, like every single weekend, giving time to my students, getting to know their families so that there was a trust between us. And what that meant really, and I think part of why my class got elevated, is that so I think the basic, the, the number one pedagogical skill is to understand that when you're working with young people, that there's a social there's a social dynamic outside of you, which we understand inherently. But you need to find out who everybody follows. Uh, like the very first day, the very first day of class, you need to figure out who in this room is everybody actually looking to, because it's not me as a teacher. Mm-hmm. And once you know who that is, or who those few couple people are, you need to win them over. Um, you need to get to, they they need to be actually doing your work for you, in a sense, in terms of like class management. Um, if they want to listen to you, if they want to like follow the rules, then everybody will. Um, and so it happened that I had two, I had one kid in my class, Johnny Mejia. He was actually 15. He was going on 16. He was in sixth grade. still. he'd failed year after year. His, you know, mainly because of a language barrier. Mm -hmm. His grandfather was the head of, um, Los Locos, which is a Mexican gang. Mm -hmm. And so he was heavily involved in the gangs. And, um, I spent a lot of time getting to know that kid and his family and trying to help him, um, get on a different track. But also it meant that he put a bubble of protection on my classroom. And so there was a, a riot in the school. The Dean of students was like taken away in an ambulance, like four kids were handcuffed. Like every classroom was like open and like teachers were like pelted with full milk cartons and chairs. And it was like, it was a really like crazy kind of violent incident And my classroom like was completely undisturbed. And so um, I think part of that, it wasn't because I was like such an inspiring teacher. It's because I understood the way that sort of like many tribes work, right? Is that those kids were going to listen to Johnny Mejia. Johnny Mejia trusted me. And so our class was under the protection essentially of Los Locos Um, and and that was the same thing both years where I had a kid in my class who was, like, you know, highly charismatic or whatever. And if you win over that kid, then mm. you win over, like, oceans of kids, essentially. Right. Um, so wow. I guess, like, yeah, basically a, a, a massive game of manipulation is, I guess, was, <laughs> I guess, how I got it.
0: Um, I, I would say extremely strategic thinking on um, and, and <laughs> yeah. your part, right? Yeah. <laughs> mm. Yes, exactly. So I'm going to reintroduce you to our listeners. My guest is Christina Ho, the Dean of Experiential Education and Community Partnerships at Le Jardin Academy and the Executive Director of the Wild Community Foundation. Christina lives in Kailua Town on the Windward side of Oahu. So, Christina, for a few minutes, uh, um, and this is perfect segue to what you were just describing um, in that letter that you had written to Le Jardin. Um, for, for a couple of minutes, I want to talk about juxtapositions. Um, it's a word you used in your personal statement that you shared with me. Um, so explain what you meant when you talked about the striking, and that's my word, by the way, juxtapositions between your life uh, on an Indian reservation in Montana and the public school where you taught in the Bronx and the private school you landed at in Hawaii, Le Lishardan Academy
2: Wait a minute.
0: Can you say that again? Yeah, so I I think let, let's come at it a let's come at it a different oh, way. Okay, I think you I got it. Sorry. Yeah. The and I, and I of, I'll also yeah, I note it. that in in that letter, you know, that the cover letter that you wrote, there's a certain irony that you were describing the situation to folks <laughs> uh-huh, at Leisure yeah. right? Who who wouldn't yeah. have imagined something like that. But I think that that's pretty striking in and of itself. Yeah.
2: <laughs> right. So the juxtaposition between teaching in the Bronx and then teaching at Le Gerdan, essentially. Yeah.
0: And your life yeah. in Montana.
2: Yeah. So um, I grapple with my life at Leisure Dan every day um,
0: because
2: I, it, I always will be an outsider to an extent. And, and I don't mean that in a, bad way or with any yearning, I, um, I realized that the, the reality of growing up with money is that you have an entirely different worldview about what's possible for you. Mm -hmm. Um, like if you get a speeding ticket, your parents probably know someone who's a lawyer and can quickly like get it dismissed. Like, um, if you, have some kind of, like, rash on your leg. It's possible that either one of your parents is a doctor or their friends are, and you just call them and take a picture of it and ask them, um, what is this, you know? And those kind of, like, little differences, you know, and then you put them together with all the big differences of, like, I really want to go to a summer camp or I really want to go to Greece or I, I want to go to this college. Um, even when our students have to go without some things, um, it's nothing like, you know my students in the Bronx who were like reading all the mail for their parents because their parents weren't fluent in English or couldn't read, um, who were taking care of siblings who had 10 people in a one bedroom apartment, who were worried about um, having one member of their family deported at all times, or who on their way home from school every day were harassed by gangs who wanted them to join. Um, You know, just, just like just such a different life. And there are places where we can always overlap and we can always find common ground, like that. We're like all generous and and we all can be compassionate and we can all, um, show hospitality to one another, whether we live in a shack or a mansion, uh, we can all, um, be critical thinkers and problem solvers and innovators. So we have like these overlaps, but in terms of like what we have constructed as, as what's possible and not possible for us at the drop of a dime, um, is really different. Right. And so, um, I have spent a lot of time trying to help students here, um, as we know, like, that metacognitive process of, like, seeing your world mm, yeah. from an outside lens um, and just really, like, like a, you know, like, even as a kid, you didn't go to the doctor. You don't go to the doctor if you are poor. Like, that's a terrible place to go. It's filled, filled with, like crying babies and mothers who are stressed out and the doctor doesn't care. And if you have Indian health service, it's like there's like story after story of just like you die at the doctors because they don't do the right thing. So you're like, you know, because it's an inefficient system or or whatever. I mean, it's just, Mm -hmm. so that, you know, those little differences where, you know, here it's like, well get your flu shot. I, that's, it's really funny. Actually even in the epidemic right now, everybody, or sorry, the pandemic um, talking about this vaccine and, it kind of gives me, it, it's just always like, wow, you just, you don't understand what it's like to be poor. Like vaccines, maybe like a, a well-meaning like public health worker will come into your community and like knock on the doors and try to like teach you about vaccines and like, you know, mm-hmm. and go get your flu shot. But that's not, it's not like a shared community experience. And it certainly wasn't for, for me as a kid, like that people are too busy surviving to be thinking and I'm sure you've read a ton about the poverty mentality where you're not planning for ten years, twenty years, fifty years down the road. Yeah. You're literally just planning for like five hours. Like, how are we going to get home? You know, like for me that was a really big problem actually. Like we didn't always have a way to get home. And so sometimes it was walking like five or six miles um, you know, in the snow. Like I know that sounds like so like I'm going to go both ways. But really like it was um, for as a child, it was just like you, you weren't like you know, or like I, I, um, even my husband, who is also from Montana and, and comes from a middle class family and a more established kind of um life, and like little things like wiping down the bathroom fixtures or like making sure you change your car's oil because and those are big things for him because like well, that's how things last, and that is just like not the mentality of people in poverty. And it's not because one mentality is better than the other. It's just like a literally a different sense of time and how long you're going to be on the planet. And like, what's their priority. Mm-hmm. So with my students and my colleagues here, um, it's always kind of this game of trying to help people see that this, to that I guess cannot not take for granted mm-hmm. um, the worldview that they've been gifted. Um, but also to sometimes check it because sometimes that worldview is, is not helpful actually. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I have found here with my students and the reason I've stayed here so long, um, to me, you stay in a place while you still have a use. Um, if there's a job, you do it kind of thing. Um, my population that I work with doesn't get a lot of struggle. They don't have the gift of struggle. Um, and Mm -hmm. so to me, that's a huge part of, um, becoming your best self. So, Mm. I kind of consider my role at Later on to be a, about providing kids struggle. And mostly I do that through wild kids, mm. um, but I do that in my classes as well. Um, wow. And through um, experiential education, but mm. I don't know. I think I just kind of rambled. It's hard, it's hard to describe the juxtapositions because they're so, they're so vast and they're so um, um, stark and in some ways, they're highly nuanced. So, mm. what do you do? I don't know. It would take it would take another podcast to like talk, talk about the
0: juxtaposition. <laughs> yeah, I think I think what I pull out of it, Christina, is that phrase, "the gift of struggle," and that um, that that is part of what we do as educators is to bring different worldviews and an empathetic a process of empathy to our kids. And um, I think that that's that's really interesting. That idea of the gift of struggle. That's that you're right. That would be worthy of a whole separate, um, you know, episode, but we'll, we'll do that another time. So (laughs) everybody stay with us after this short break, we will come back with more questions for Christina Ho. This is Guy Kawasaki. If you want to learn how to be a remarkable person, please check out my podcast, Remarkable People, I interview people like Roy Yamaguchi, Margaret Atwood, Jane Goodall, Stephen Wolfram, Stephen Pinker, Ariana Huffington, and Steve Wozniak. The point of the podcast is to help you become a little bit more remarkable. To learn more, go to remarkablepeople.com. Thank you.
1: Hawaii's business people and professionals want to support our public high school students across the state, like me, Law Yakovich, a senior at Kuku High School. And Hawaii's teachers and other educators want classroom speakers, curriculum advice, contest judges, mentors, and other support from businesses and nonprofits. The Climb High Bridge
0: is Hawaii Department of Education's official platform to connect the two communities.
1: It's like Match.com, specifically designed to connect businesses and schools. Learn more by sending an email to info at climbhigh.org. That's spelled C-L-I-M-B-H-I dot
2: Hi, friends. Toy Hirschman here from the Entre Ed Talk podcast. I am super excited to support the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast hosted by none other than the amazing Josh Rapoon. And... I also want to give a big shout out to all of the incredible educators in Hawaii who are doing unreal things in the entrepreneurship and design-based thinking spaces. I hope you all subscribe and listen to what school could be in Hawaii. And also, hey, why not check out the Entre Ed Talk podcast where we interview stellar entrepreneurial educators and entrepreneurs from across the country and globe. I cannot wait to connect with you.
0: My name is Josh Rapoon, and this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. Today, we are with Christina Ho, the Dean of Experiential Education and Community Partnerships at Le Jardin Academy on the windward side of Oahu. So, Christina, we first met back in early 2016, as I was getting ready to screen Ted Dintersmith's acclaimed documentary, Most Likely to Succeed. So... Tell us the story of how you learned about the film and how your humanities class, which was ninth grade, am I correct about that? Yeah,
2: that was ninth
0: grade. Ninth grade, decided to focus on education and decided to screen the film and develop projects related to Le Jourdan's process of course creation.
2: Um, Okay, so I actually, as you say it, I, I can't even remember how... I found out about most likely to succeed. I, um, I feel like I'm in like, probably like you, I get like all these emails from various, um, organizations that are trying to improve school. And I think one of them has a link. I, I,
1: Mm.
2: I can't find it in my memory how I found out about the, the film. Um, but my, my ninth grade humanities course, um, was structured and continues to be, it's now taught by my dear friend, Joel Saito. But, um, it was structured as two semester long kind of focus areas. And the first semester is um, all about um, becoming aware of your culture. Basically that we create culture. It seems like a basic idea, but of course, as we know, um, many people just seem to not understand that all of this is made up. So the theme of the first semester is, Hey, it's all made up. And um, we focus mostly on gender and race and like that. Those norms are, completely culturally constructed um in the second semester excuse me our focus is on shift happens um which is essentially that because it's all made up we can shift it we can change it um Mm. and in the past i had um had the kids watch waiting for superman to help them Mm. um get get an idea of educational inequity and like really understand that this system that we're in this school this idea of school is just that it's an idea and it's relatively new um most likely to succeed really fit in with that um obviously in in multitude of ways and um so we decided to screen it and my thought was that we talk a lot about schools but like any other business you would be talking a little bit more often to your client and I understand kind of the worry and the danger and why people don't Talk to students more about school because you're like, well, we don't know what could benefit them. You know, I get it. Um, but to me, like engaging kids in what school could be and what, um, what education could look like is super important. And I think that's shared with a number of educators. So we decided to have the kids be the ones <clears throat> to essentially engage the parent community in um, thinking about, could we change, like really overhaul, Mm-hmm. the way our education is that just at leisure time, just in a small way, right? Like maybe not all of Hawaii, not all of the country, but just like at our school immediately. And it was a really fascinating experience. And that's when we got a chance to meet you and have you um, help in- facilitate that screening of the film. And so we had the parents come and watch the film and then go into these breakout groups. Right. And, um, and it was, our students had to like, it was a really fun kind of thing to watch because I had to navigate, um, how to be polite and not come across as like a, you know, a whippersnapper. Um, but also like how to manage like some parents that were just essentially like, um, kind of fear-based thinking, right? Like, well, if we, if we change classes and like, we'll have an entire population that's illiterate right? (laughs) or like, you know, like I, you know, all this, like, all these project-based learning, well, that's not going to make you a doctor. And it's like, okay, well... Um, so it's really cool for our kids to see, like, what they're up against in terms of... And it's not just the current, um, gen- the current like, parent generation. It's that, like, as we understand, like, as people get older, that there's a change aversion. And so how do you manage change when you're trying to ask a population that has change aversion to, to spearhead the change? Like, is there really it's a it's quite the conundrum um but we were really lucky our headmaster at the time dj condon who is going to be taking a head master position in luxem at an international school in luxembourg um in this upcoming august but he um had shared this belief in um student agency and um you know student input and student voice and so then we from the film we, we did the screening and then the kids were allowed to develop, like, okay, so you just are most likely to succeed. Um, and you got a chance to see, like, how High Tech High um, does mm-hmm. their thing. And you heard from people about uh, kind of rethinking what we think is, like, the most important thing for you to learn. So, it's, like, pitch your own courses. And so the kids developed their own courses in, like, small groups and they put together proposals and then they sent them to the headmaster and the principals and the deans. And then they had to be, like, um, they had to pitch. They did send in a proposal. If their proposal got initial um, kind of an interest tick, then they then had to um, pitch it in front of a panel that had the headmaster and principals and deans, um, and make a case. And in the end, one class, um, one course, got approved, and it was a de- basically a de- design course, mm. um, and it basically was like project-based design where the entire year was just based rather than teaching design or the design cycle. Mm. Um, it was the kids pitching, um, it was called global remedies. They had to find issues like use, you know, empathy to to determine problems and, and spend a year solving them. Mm. Um, so it was, I mean, it was a really cool, um, experiment. There were a couple of things that I think, um, that, I, that was one of my one of my students, and it's also my own um, feelings about most likely to succeed. Is that it's it's um, it's a really important film and an important movement that's come from that film. You know, at least in Hawaii, much thanks to you, Josh. Um, but also recognizing that the film focuses on High Tech High, um, in which which falls a little short. Right, the school itself has some really good things about it, but as we recognize. Um, the, the kind of like highlight is like the teachers get together and they come up with these cool interdisciplinary projects. Yeah, and it's like right. one tick off, right. It's one tick off from like where we need to be. still. um, and maybe it's like what we need is both. We need, uh, which is something that we're trying to leisure down that I really like where teachers and students can like pitch these impact projects and they can pick them together. They can pitch them apart. And then we create an impact menu and people sign up. So, mm, yeah, um, you know, so anyways, it was a, it was really cool, and it was cool to have you there. Um, and since then, I feel like um, a lot of things have changed at Leisure
0: for the mm. better. I, I feel like this is so fascinating, Christina. It's like that was such—and it was such a privilege to watch this unfold. It was such a multifaceted thing. I mean, just for our listeners, imagine two screening rooms, maybe 100 parents, community members— in each one, they're practically going simultaneously. And then after the film is over, just picture that there's you know maybe a dozen round tables in each of these screening rooms. And for an hour after the film, these ninth graders facilitated these round table discussions. And that's just, that's mind blowing in and of itself. But then the whole part about how that represented a learning journey and that there was a, a bit of an entrepreneur, entrepreneurial thing built into this, because the kids were, were pitching ideas for courses. And that's, that's the way that works, you know, not everyone gets accepted. So for you to observe this as a, as a learning journey, and to be understanding the struggles that the kids were going through along the way, to me, it's just, it's a fascinating example of, of how you think as a teacher and, and your, Um, your willingness to co-create with the kids. I mean, that's a, that's a fair statement, right? You're a co-creator. Yeah, totally.
2: Yeah. I would say I'm the co-creator.
0: Yes. Yeah. That's, that's super cool. So great segue to this next question, Christina, which is that you've, you've written that the Western world is, um, and I quote is obsessed with learning, but more specifically you believe that we're obsessed with measuring learning and you've written that the words "human" and "learner" ought to be synonymous. What did you mean by that?
2: Yeah, uh, and again, you know, just for everyone to know, that was a, that was a draft and still working out my thesis. <laughs> yeah, no. But yes, I, I think um, I have. You, I mean, anybody who's been in education for more than five years like gets like how there's just buzzwords that come in and out and buzz programs and blah 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 you yeah. know kind of like eds and flows we get it i in the time that i've been a teacher um, which is not that long it's been 17 years i what i have um observed is this like kind of like especially any any school that considers itself progressive i think um it's all about l- the learner, the learning um and i just feel like it's a big it's a big farce um i think the reality is, is that humans, it's like we breathe, breathing and learning. It's like what we do, mm-hmm. right? We're wired for it. Um, we learn when we, um, when we get feedback in literally every interaction we learn. Um, I, I don't, I, it's like, it's like trying to define breathing. I guess you're, it's like an, um, an automatic mm-hmm. part of who we are. So school is trying to take the corner on learning. First of all, irks me. Because, um, as we know, learning doesn't happen in one place. Mm -hmm. Then also to sort of be like, we're all about learning. And then so what we can do is we can measure the learning. And if we just do the job and, like, make the right test to measure the learning, then we can, like, justify what we're doing. And you're like, oh, God. And if you talk to any teacher, it's like the one thing they hate, what? They hate grading. They, that's like the one thing that like takes the like the wind out of them. Like these like incredible teachers all around the country who are doing really incredible things and like inspiring students and inspiring change. And you ask any of them, "What do you hate?" Well, I hate grading. And it's like, why? Is it because teachers are are lazy? No, it's not because teachers are lazy. Like grading is fun in terms of like reading kids' works, work, or like interviewing kids or like learning more about like where they're at so that you can support them. That's fun. But it's the, like, trying to decide, well, on the rubric, where do you fall? Are you a four? Or are you a five? Yeah. Are you a three? And it's, like, all of it is made up. And, like, grade inflation abounds. And um, it's not standard. We're pretending like it is. So then, like, the only way we can standardize it is through standardized tests, which have, like, obviously, like, cultural bias. It's just a disaster. And to me, I'm, like, well, part of it is educators and educational institutions continuing to tell that they're all about learning. Literally humans are about learning like any job. Apple store is about learning. Um, The the barista is about learning. Education is about really, truly it's about curating experiences that create a particular society. And that is why we have decided that American history is important, for example. Mm, And that is why we have decided that we think everybody should read certain novels. It's why we have a literary canon. It's, it's, we should just own it. We're agents of socialization. We're building society with what we choose Mm -hmm. to teach. And if Mm -hmm. we started talking about that, then we could like start to be a lot more comfortable in having those conversations about Mm -hmm. what do we teach and why, and what do we not teach and why
0: that's, Um, that's actually perfect segue into where I wanted to go next. And, um, so you know, again, in your personal statement, and as you can see, I know it's a draft, but I, you know, I went down a bunch of rabbit holes while reading your personal statement. It's fascinating. Um, so you shared with me, um, or you, you actually asked a series of questions in your personal statement. So why do we not teach farming or beadwork or construction or intuition or wayfinding? Why not teach filmmaking or ethics or computer programming? And a bit later in this extended thought you suggest we are moving down a kind of entirely wrong path and you call into question the concept of core curriculums versus electives and so on. So I I want to sort this out with you a little bit. So you seem to be drawing a distinction between teaching subjects and, quote, curating experiences. Those are your words, which feels like two very different ways of seeing the role of an educator and even a student. So what are your your thoughts about that? Uh,
2: Yeah, so I... And I know it's just like a, on some level it's just a semantics issue, but of course we know that in semantics comes yeah. so much um, understanding. Mm-hmm. So we call them core subjects, right, in, in most schools. And I think this is kind of where Most Likely to Succeed was headed, and in, in, and I think that's where High Tech High is headed. And a lot of schools that are trying something different is is calling into question – that essentially, like factory model, that was adopted mid-century in order to kind of prep a lot of schools call themselves like college preparatory, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and um, and so that a lot of high schools will kind of be like, well, we want to do that, but the colleges won't accept it, and so they they kind of hide behind the reason that they don't change things is because, well, how could we then feed our kids into the college? So it's like the colleges need to change before we can change. Um, and it's just like a bunch of like kind of buck passing to -hmm. some extent. Um, but to me, and it's, I'm not even necessarily arguing against having core subjects. I, I think it's what I'm, what I'd like to see is a more elevated conversation in schools, um, and between schools and within education and, um, you know, between teachers, because I I think, like, it it does make me wonder, like, why isn't computer programming a what we call a core subject? Like, why not? Mm -hmm. Um, It seems to be like one of the most important skills that someone can have in this day and age. So why isn't that? Like, Mm -hmm. why are we still using this outdated model? But the reason I would differentiate subjects from experiences is that, and obviously I am the Dean of Experiential Education, so there's an, a bias here, just right. um, red flag, but I, I guess, like, um, to me, if you were to step back and say, like, what experiences do I want to these humans, because basically we have this sacred responsibility, parents drop their kids off at this, like, location, and they trust that whatever we do in that day, that we see the best in their child, and that their child. Um, becomes better. And maybe that's like an over, um, like, like maybe I'm over inflating the story. Maybe it's just childcare. And for some, I think it is, but at the end of the day, they're still trusting that their child because of school will be able to succeed in the world. And so my question is, is like, what experiences help people succeed in the world? And I would argue that there are a number of experiences that we are not giving kids that would ensure their success. One of them being like what I talked about earlier, which is like experiences that cause them to authentically struggle, not struggle with like, oh, you didn't like pass this math test, try again, but struggle as in, in this moment, in this expedition that you're on, this expeditionary thinking, you're, it's hard to get up this hill and you're going to have to push and you can't give up because there's no one to come get you. And so when you get to the top, what you will have is the first seed of authentic confidence. Cause you did it. You got to the top and you got immediate feedback with that. Right. And, the, and as you know, there's tons of um, research around flow and that like immediate feedback that a lot of kids don't get in school. But I just am like, we need to be brave and we're not very brave um, mm. in our systems. And, um, and, and, and I think the best people can come up with is like, well, let's do interdisciplinary courses. Yeah, but like right. embedded in that is like discipline. Yep. So it's like maybe science and humanities can get together and have a shared unit. And you're like, why don't we just, let's try a different route. And I'm not saying it's the right one, but I'm just interested in the experiment of like, let's not even think about disciplines. Let's just think about experiences. Right. And then in those experiences, let's like kind of like um, comb out what is learned. And then right. at the end of the day, if we're like, oh, there's some really important things that didn't get learned that we think that we're think that we willing to take a stand and say we think everybody should learn these things, then, then let's create some more experiences that would ensure that. Mm. Um, yeah. But I, I think everybody just needs to get on board with the truth, which is that education is like a massive propaganda machine. So just make sure that you're teaching the right propaganda because that is what we're doing. Mm. We're, you know, to some extent, like we are saying that, when I tell you these stories and give you these skills, I'm curating your worldview. Right. So right. what worldview do we
0: want? Right. So perfect. So let, let's, let's come at this from a slightly different direction, which is, um, so while, while you're at Le Jardin, you worked out an arrangement where you worked for Reach the World. And you spent yeah. a year at sea sailing from Hawaii to New Zealand. And I because of this, I had not heard of Reach the World, and I, I went onto their website, and boy, did that was that a rabbit hole. I spent a long time going through um, all of the different pages there. So, Christina, I want to read the mission statement. Um, this will take me a minute, but um, the mission statement from Reach the World's website. So, quote, Reach the World transforms the energy of travelers into a learning resource for K-12 classrooms our programs combine a digital platform messaging and video conferencing to connect youth with travelers in a one-to-one global digital exchange through our nationwide network of educators travelers and volunteers we're building a more thoughtful and welcoming society by sharing the benefits of travel with the youth of today who will be the decision makers of tomorrow so two parts to this question for you one is you know, what is your experience? Like, how do you explain reach the world to people? And then the other part two to that question is what, what did they mean when they talk about the decision maker of tomorrow? Like how does what happens with reach the world help kids become the decision makers of tomorrow? Well, um, a couple things. One
2: is my experience with Breach the world was that i to me like if i were just like to sum it up it was kind of like um you were a personal travel blogger um for a group of kids um and i think and so that's like the bare bones right mm-hmm. like that's like the easiest version of it um It goes back to that um, kind of juxtaposition question about, like, what's the difference between Le Jardin and the Bronx and the reservation? You know, what are those? And so um, a kid growing up, like for me, for example, growing up, my experience with travel was National Geographic. Like, I read National Geographic voraciously Mm -hmm, um, to, like, see the world, right? But the idea that I could ever talk to one of those people or, like... meet someone from National Geographic it's like I would have to like be that like poor kid who entered a contest and like won and like Mm -hmm. got to meet like a photographer from National Geographic right so I think the idea with Reach the World is that you give travelers the opportunity to interface with kids like me when I was a kid and like they can ask us questions and you can have like actual conversations with actual travelers because you know I didn't know anybody that was like sailing the world I don't even know anybody that sailed, obviously, as a kid, or, like, somebody that was, like, on an expedition in um, Madagascar. Like, I, I have no idea, like, how, how would I meet someone like that? How, mm-hmm. does, how do kids meet people like that? Those people come from a particular, in general, echelon of society that you don't have access to if you're not in that echelon. And so unless you, like, have a parent who is like, hey, read these National Geographic, which is what my mom did. But my kids in the Bronx certainly didn't have a like pile of National Geographics at home right. to read. So how would they know about anything outside of their immediate experience? Um, and so that the idea was reach the world, and i it was cool because we got to partner with my school in the Bronx. So my partner was um, I was we were basically travel blogging for a mm. classroom um, at Isabel Rooney Middle School. Um, that, so that, that opportunity to reconnect with that school was awesome. Um, did it work? I don't know, because it's uh, like every one of those types of programs, you need a teacher in on the ground who is going to be really like engaged. And so the first, um, go was like, eh, it kind of fell flat. Um, and then partway through our journey, I don't know if like a new teacher jumped in, but the kids got more engaged because clearly the teacher got more engaged, um, but I do think like those kind of like um, kind of out of the box ways to help, um, to connect with kids um, in places where you otherwise wouldn't have access um, is awesome. Yeah. I, I love that kind of innovation. Um, the the future decision makers. I mean, ultimately that. I, to me, when people use that kind of language, all they're saying to me is the people that will one day be able to vote, whether or not they will, I don't right. know, and will be able to be a working adult that has some impact on the economy. Yeah.
1: <laughs> um,
2: and yeah. so, like, do, does that mean that, like, every kid when they become 18 is now a decision maker? I, I guess to some extent when we want to, like, you know, how they spend their money and how they spend their time. Um, but and mm-hmm. I, I guess in some on some level, it's. That that phrasing, the future decision makers, and this is like a hard, hard thing to admit, but it's a big reason why I'm at Leisure Down Academy, is that I actually believe that the kids that come, that go to private schools in Hawaii, um,
0: and wh- even if
2: they're on full scholarship, it means that those kids will likely be, in the truest sense, future decision makers. They are going to be the ones that mm-hmm. um, are engaged civically. They are going to be the ones that are going to possibly move up the chain and become managers and CEOs and, um, you know, influencers. Mm -hmm. And um, because that's the reality of coming from resources. And even if those, and in some ways, like, I came from resources. I didn't come from monetary resources, but I came from the resources of ideas and, like, a belief in, like, a a certain way of being on the planet, which came from my mom. But I, I feel like reaching these kids, essentially reaching these actual future decision makers, the ones that are going to Mm. determine a lot of the future is critical. Mm. And I spent, I, I, and, and I grapple with it, right? Because I'm like, who is working in the public schools in Hawaii? And I actually have a lot of friends who are, and I think they're doing rad work and I'm super proud of them. And I'm not saying that every kid does not deserve an absolutely extraordinary education, What I've realized is that with my particular background, I have a chance to influence the kids that otherwise would not hear from someone that's like, oh, yeah, I know what it's like to go hungry. Yeah, I've been homeless. I've stood in the lines at a food bank. Um, I know what it's like to live in a car. Um, And I know what it's like to to not live in a car. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: And so it's, to me, those future decision makers, and I know this isn't necessarily like a reach the world question, but I've had a lot of time to kind of think about what each group of children needs. Each each child needs, like, some sort of reach the world, right? But they need different types of re- different types of travelers. So my kids in the Bronx needed travelers who were, like, going through the South Pacific to be like, hey, look at these people that live on an island that are really different than you and there's other ways to live and there's other places in the world and, like, please don't get boxed in right. and don't believe that you're trapped. Right. And these kids at Leisure Down, I believe, need a type, type of traveler that, you know, I, I get to huge coverage of taking them to to my reservation each summer Mm. to be like, yeah, this is how people live here. No, the roads are not fixed. And yes, the dogs run in packs and yes, there are people everywhere that are hungry. And, um, but yet people that are happy, Mm. let's look at that, you know, Um, rounding out what people have access to, I guess.
0: Mm -hmm. I, I, yeah, I totally hear you. There was a video on reach the world's site that I watched and There was a very young kid who was asking a traveler, you know, a simple question like uh, the traveler was in India. So the question was, you know, what's the population of India? And I thought, hmm, so what if that teacher was actually, you know, actually had uh, her class focusing on an essential question of sustainability around water resources And Mm -hmm. then, then the kid's question is going to be like super different. Like what are your perceptions of the way, you know, people use water, that sort of thing. So I, what I'm, what I'm hearing from you is it's really in the authenticity of whatever it is that the kids are working on and, you know, that's that's one way to think about approaching all of these kinds of programs like Reach the World is it it's really dependent on the educator in the classroom and the kids and possibly the co creation that's going on in terms of essential learning. Um so that,
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So Yeah, so, I mean it's
2: a great idea. Reach the world. Just to say it's a great idea. Mm-hmm. But it's like everything else, it's limited by it's limited by essentially like the gatekeeper who is the teacher. Right.
0: And so if the teacher. Yeah. So. Yeah. But huge, yeah. Huge, huge potential if what you're yeah, working on are essential questions. Right. So right. perfect. So, so Christina, um, we've actually come down to the very end here. This is amazing. It's gone by like a shot. Um I I often end these episodes by asking guests what they think school could be, because you know the podcast is named after uh Ted Dintersmith's book, What School Could Be. So here's a slight variation on that idea for you. Um, you wrote in your personal statement, and I quote, as Leisure Down Academy's Dean of Experiential Education and the executive director of the Wild Community Foundation. I strive to rewild education, to design extraordinary experiences filled with failure and reckoning, passion and inspiration, and rich with diverse relationships so that the small communities I work with can slowly shift and the students I reach can imagine a new trajectory for us all. So you're the founder of Wild Kids, and this is great that we can end on this today. What is Wild Kids, and how does it help us understand what learning could be? Christina?
2: Um, well, I should just clarify, I am the co-founder of Wild Kids. It was founded with a group of middle school students, of sixth-grade students.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, we, we did it together, um, and those kids are now in their early 20s. They're all around 23, 24 years old, um, and when they were 11 and 12, they – wanted to, um, endeavor to create this, um, basically they just needed a pathway outside. (laughs) Real simple. They were like, we have to get outside. Um, and from that, as they aged up right over the years, Wild Kids has grown through our collaboration of what is it that, that you need that you're not getting, um, and so everything about wild kids on the surface looks like outdoor education, which is often how we describe ourselves, like an outdoor education organization, because it's like the quickest way. Um, but actually, all it is is like education that happens outdoors, um, sometimes, not even all the time. Um, but it's essentially the, the premise is asking kids, what is it that you need that you're not getting, that we can provide? Um, and so opportunities for activism, opportunities for, um, entrepreneur endeavors, um, uh, authentic community engagement, sustained community engagement, um, expeditionary learning. Those things are what Wild Kids provides, um, a a small group of students. Um, a lot of them are from Le Many of them are not. Um, we have kids from Ilani and Punahou, um, Kalakumana, um, Kalaheo, Kailua High School. Mm. Um, the idea is that, um, and we, I'm really lucky this year, that we are now like a formal option at Leisure We've always just kind of been this partner that um, some kids, we you know, we meet in the evenings at like 7 p.m. and like on the weekends and Um, Now we are given a little bit of time in the school day, which is really nice because it it, um, increases like kind of what we can do. Um, But I guess Wild Kids is my vision for education. It it encompasses what I think is most important, which is that you are making it your mission to constantly um, engage and collaborate with who we see as our client, which is the students. But if we were like co-creating this future, if we were saying we we think the future can be really really bright for all of us, and we're going to co-create like just the way that we did eons ago, in which well eons might be a little much, but in which in which we did historically um, where young people were collaborating with old people, um, and we don't do that anymore because all the young people are in school, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, and so Wild Kids is like I think the heart of it is. Fairly um, tribal in the sense that it's um, multi-generational, that the kids make the decisions with the adults, um, and that we we have this philosophy, this um, this mountain range philosophy, which is that you know in our in our like aging process as humans, what we can say is that we have over time we have um, more and more diverse experiences to pull from. And so, but we also just have different experiences. And so, when you're 30, maybe you're you're standing on top of a peak, and, and when you're 10, you're in a valley. And it's not that the 30-year-old can see more than the 10-year-old; it can, that 30-year-old just sees different things. So if we honor each other, I honor the 10-year-old in the valley and can ask them, what's in the valley? What do you see? How do you, like, what do you think is best? And I can honor the 30-year-old and say, what do you see from that peak? And I can honor the 15-year-old who's like, you know, just cresting a small hill. Um, And we all are, what we have is different vantage points, um, Mm -hmm. essentially, and that they're all valuable. And so the entire premise of Wild Kids is that if we harness those vantage points and and we honor each other's experiences and perspectives and, and know that there are times where the 30-year-old is going to be the best person to look to because they have, they can see something that's really important. And there's other times where the 10-year-old is the best person to look to and learning mm-hmm. how to do that in a, in a learning community mm-hmm. um, so that it's not, it doesn't, you know, I think sometimes people get carried away like student voice and student choice. And it's like, well, no, sometimes students actually, they can't see something. And so their ideas actually aren't the most worthy at the table thats right. that's not a bad thing that's a good thing okay this this idea is not the best one. sorry, um and this faculty has a better idea, and sometimes their ideas are the best ones, and it's like being able to honor that truth that like all humans are learners and they have unique vantage points that we can use and and harness to to innovate and make a better future for each other mm. um so I would say that because that's like the basic philosophy in wild kids that's what the guides are trained in that's what our board is you know, trained in. That's what all of our students are acculturated to understand. Um, there's a really high level of alumni engagement. Like a lot of our guides are former wild kids. Um, and so I think like with that, we're able to um, create a learning environment that is more conducive to, hmm. Um, hmm. I think, Personally, I think is more conducive to that vision that all educators say they have, which is that we're going to make the world a better place. Mm, right. We can't, we can't make the world a better place when we're the ones that are always curating the courses and we're the ones that are determining what'll be taught. It's too narrow of a vantage point. Mm. Um, we need to expand that. I think so. I don't know if I really answered it. No, absolutely. Better,
0: <laughs> and I and I do. I have one more question about it, but let me preface that question. With, you know, just like a quick story, which is, you know, that I, you know, grew up in a, in a family of nine people that, I, and there were seven kids and my two parents, and we grew up in Kahalu on the windward side of Oahu. And and my growing up playground and learning area was Kaneohe Bay. And um, I, I think a lot about when I was, you know, exploring Wild Kids and going through your site and reading your personal statement that I had two lives when I was a kid. One was the life that was mostly dominated by structured time at Punahou School and even at Benjamin Parker Elementary. Um, And then there was the time that was completely unstructured, which was at home, after school, before school, weekends, and during the summers and other breaks, where, you know, within that unstructured framework, I, I wilded with my brothers and with our neighbors and everybody else all over the place and I think my question is is about that concept of the unstructured time and how valuable mm-hmm. that is and if you could if you mm-hmm. could talk about that a little bit
2: yeah um and I think it is a so the rewilding part of my vision is um, and I'm, I'm excited about this opportunity at leisureger um, you know that's unfolded over many years but is starting to to really start to crystallize where kids have that opportunity to have the structured time in the classroom. um, And it's complemented with this unstructured time. Mm. Um, And because I don't know if I have a strong thesis on whether or not all time should be unstructured or what I, I don't, I don't feel like um, there's one right way. I just want to see more pathways for kids. Um, And I do believe that we have a um, fundamental need to be in nature. And I think that that's been taken away and people don't even know that they need it until they, um, get out there and start to have experiences, um, that are profound. But I think like just wild kids is very much, and that's sometimes hard for parents and and other faculty to understand is that when we take kids into the forest, um, we don't have a curriculum. Mm -hmm. There is no curriculum. We're not trying to teach, um, survival skills or orienteering skills. We're not even trying to teach the names of native versus invasive versus canoe plants. We're not trying to, we're trying to do is offer a classroom essentially that is unstructured and that kind of helps kids hone intuition to think is an, like an absolutely essential part of being a successful and happy human is a honed intuition. And that has to come through like a series of failures and recoveries. Um, And so that can't come by me telling you what you need to do today. It's you coming into the forest and you being tired or being grumpy and like having a series of experiences that change your mood or don't change your mood. And then, um, and, and that's talking about that. Um, it's, it's deciding on a whim that we're going to make up a brand new game and then coming up with the rules ourselves. Um, it's like deciding on a whim that we're going to build an entire village for elves. And like, there's no plan other than the plan that we make. Um, I, you know, I have to say that, like, we are incredibly lucky that the King family has basically for the last 12 years said, we are totally fine with you bringing kids into, into this land that we own, and we, are, we believe it's important, and so we're just going to do it. Mm-hmm. Even though it's a liability, even though we know it's unstructured, and that kids are just romping around in the forest, like, you know, tripping over rocks and playing with sticks, that this family here in Kailua has said, we, we're, we're okay with that and we value it. Um, mm. that, I mean, that's an, that is an incredible gift. Um, and, and what's come of it is kids that I think are some of the most confident, self-aware humans because um, just so many things arise, like a pig in a snare. What do we do?
1: Mm.
2: What, what's our plan, guys? Let's just talk about this ethical dilemma. You know, going over to the marsh, there's a cat in a cage. Let's talk about this ethical dilemma. What mm. do we do? What do we think? Mm. And letting, like, third graders grapple with that. It wasn't in the plan. It just happened. So it's like, I think it's like bringing back that, um, the mentorship model in which, like, you're Mm. experiencing life together and somebody can mentor you and help you, um, help that experience teach you important lessons instead of accidentally teaching you the wrong thing, you know? Mm. Um, but yeah, so I, and I also have to say that now as a parent, I, I, I am faced with some of the like biggest struggles I've ever been faced with. And every parent listening is probably like, yeah, well, welcome to the club. But the biggest one is that I'm not parenting my child. She's at school. And she's at school and she'll be at school um, every day. And, and so what that means is that we're not experiencing life together. She's actually experiencing it with other people. Mm. And I think as a society, we have to like pause and think about that. Because when we lived in tribes, you had various groups that you were assigned to for various reasons. And this is certainly true of like Plains tribes. And I think in Hawaii, you had its own system here. But you, those were your people who helped guide you through life and guide your experiences that you had and like help you with your choices and help you like decide what, you know, who you were going to be. And what we've done is we've on some level outsourced that very, very sacred reality of becoming your best human self we've outsourced it to schools and so we better make sure that we're doing we're doing it well Mm. because it's like probably the most important part of society We're, we're growing humans and parents are going to work so that they can pay the bills and pay the tuition bills and like you know what i mean it's like what what have we done as a society that this is where we're at um so my hope is that wild kids can can give kids those like very authentic wild relationships and experiences that that we used to have all the time and that some people luckily still do have all
0: the time that's fantastic so christina it is a privilege uh, to call you an education colleague and friend and it's really been my pleasure to talk to you today Um, please stay safe uh, everyone in your family and your community Uh, be health be healthy and in the weeks and months to come as we continue through this pandemic thank you for what you do for kids and and for what you do for the world and now it's time for a listener review this one comes from fred delsey one of the co-founders of an artifacts of learning app called unruler it's titled awesome resource for learner-centered program developers Fred writes, I've been really impressed with what Josh Rapun is doing here. He's highlighting the innovation that's happening in education in Hawaii by bringing in those who are leading the work and having real conversations with them. A great resource for those inside and outside Hawaii. Mahalo Fred, it is my intention to have you and your other co-founders on this show at some point during season two. To learn more about Unruler, go to Unruler.com. That's U-N-R-U-L-R.com. If you like this series, please give us a rating and review at your favorite podcast store. The What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast is brought to you by Josh Rapoon Productions. Your host is me, Josh Rapoon. My editor, show consultant, and sound engineer is Daniel Galad at DG Sound Creations. Daniel, an amazing musician, created the original theme music heard in these episodes. To learn more about Daniel or to hire him for your next music gig, see our show notes where you'll find his email address and Facebook URL. The series is funded by Education Change agent Ted Dintersmith, executive producer of the documentary film Most Likely to Succeed, and author of the best-selling book, What School Could Be. Send your feedback to MLTSinHawaii at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at MLTS in Hawaii. Finally, please like our Most Likely to Succeed in Hawaii Facebook page and YouTube channel. Until the next episode, please stay safe, wear your masks, keep socially distant, and be kind to one another. I'll see you soon.